This is The Conversation on HPR1, and this morning, satellite imagery shows the front of Mauna Loa's lava flow just under two miles from the Daniel K. Inouye Highway. That front is creeping forward at about 70 feet per hour, less than half of its speed yesterday. But scientists say that's not a sign that the eruption is nearing a close. Lava is still being produced at significant rates at Fisher 3. Hawaii Island Mayor Mitch Roth confirmed today that the Hawaii Army National Guard will be activated today to help with increased traffic along the highway. The Army says over uh, uh, 14,000 vehicles have traversed the uh, viewing route since it first opened. In addition to the increased traffic prompted by a Mauna Loa eruption, health risks from VOG have also raised some concerns. According to the University of Hawaii's VMAP VOG forecast dashboard, winds are currently blowing out of the south, which means VOG could be impacting residents on the north side of the island. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with the uh, State Health Department's toxicologist, Dr. Diana Felton, this morning to discuss VOG. For those who may be hearing the term VOG for the first time, can you talk about what it is and what kind of health impacts it poses? Sure. Vog is a term used which really means volcanic smog or smog that results from air emissions that come out of an erupting volcano. And what happens, The one of the primary gases that comes out of our Hawaiian volcanoes is sulfur dioxide. And when sulfur dioxide comes out of the volcano, over a short period of time, it reacts with other chemicals and in the atmosphere and local air chemicals, and it turns into VOG, which is basically a combination of sulfate aerosols and and small particulate matter. And so it makes a hazy, smog-like look to the air uh, when it is present in impacting areas. As far as health effects from VOG, we expect people to have things similar to other types of air pollution in some ways. We expect to see people have irritation to their eyes, their throat, their nose. And in particular, VOG can be very irritating to the lungs and cause people to have difficulty breathing. And that's particularly true for people that have lung disease at baseline. So people with asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD or emphysema, those are people that may be more affected by the poor air quality or the VOG. And these people that tend to be impacted by VOG, this is the the VOG that's that's uh, in the upper atmosphere and it's being blown. And as it's being blown, it's kind of being dissipated to a certain extent. They're being affected downwind, right? So that is possible. We aren't actually seeing a lot of poor air quality at the air at the ground level with this eruption so far. We've been keeping a really close eye on all the air monitors around Hawaii Island and and across the state. And so far, we haven't seen significant deterioration in the air quality. So at this point, I wouldn't expect people to be having significant impacts, health impacts from VOG, even sensitive people. Now, everyone's different. There's lots of things that can affect that. This is cold, flu, RSV, and COVID season. So, you know, people may be having respiratory-type symptoms. But so far, we've, you know, in some senses really consider things really lucky right now in that we, while the volcano is emitting a lot of sulfur dioxide, we're not seeing the accumulation of VOG at an air level where, 
you know, at the ground where people are breathing. So, so far, things have been very good with this eruption, which is a, a big contrast to the 2018 Kilauea eruption, where the VOG concentrations and the sulfur dioxide concentrations were really high at the ground level, at the level where people are breathing. And the reason I brought that up is because we've heard reports of people trying to hike closer to the eruption or the lava flow. What kind of increased health risks are these people potentially exposing themselves to, being closer to where the gases are being emitted? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, first and foremost, the lava, right? And, you know, the heat and the the burning molten rock is, is of primary concern, but the gases are a big concern as well. So the closer you get to the eruption, the higher the risk that you may be exposed to the actual sulfur dioxide coming out of the volcano, along with other gases that volcanoes emit, like carbon dioxide. And if those those can be very acutely dangerous if they're in high enough concentration. What are some things people can do to minimize or avoid being exposed to VOG? So really important here to differentiate between the sulfur dioxide gas or the gases coming out of the volcano and VOG. So once things have processed and changed into VOG, there are a number of things you can do to avoid exposure. For either of them, you know, leaving the area or avoiding exposure is sort of the number one thing. And so avoiding exposure from VOG can look like different ways. So you can have, you know, something as sort of complex as, as leaving the area that's impacted and, move, you know, moving to a different part of the island where the VOG is, is less. But there's also simpler things that can be done. So limiting your outdoor activity or in, or exertion outdoors can help. Staying inside. If your house seals, you know, closing the doors and windows, running an air purifier. Um, if you have a, an air conditioner, setting it to recirculate. All of those things can help reduce your exposure to bog. And then some of the sort of Usual things about staying healthy, like staying hydrated, avoiding smoking, those will also help if you are exposed to VOG. And then the question always comes up about face masks. And, you know, this is a little bit of a, a complex issue. It's really important to recognize that the face masks really don't do anything for the gases that are coming out of the volcano. So for sulfur dioxide, a uh, regular face mask is not going to help with that. There may be some protection from face masks from some of the, the components of VOG and other things that come out of the volcano, like ash or Pele's hair. And a well-fitting N95 face mask may protect you from some of the particulate matter in the sulfate aerosols in VOG. And if someone has been exposed to VOG and is suffering symptoms of exposure, what can they do to get better? So number one is try to remove yourself from the VOG if you can. That's not always possible, but if, if possible, that's the number one thing. But then other things that can help if people have underlying lung disease like asthma or COPD to make sure they use their medic take their medications regularly. If people use a rescue inhaler, they may need to use that more than, than regular. And then um, over-the-counter symptomatic medications can help as well, nasal sprays, cough cold medicines, things that sort of treat the symptoms directly. But the number one thing is you really want to try to get away from the exposure or from the VOG if you can. Where can someone go to get information on VOG or to find out their risk of VOG exposure? Does the Department of Health have information somewhere that people can educate themselves with? 
Yeah, there's a lot of really good information out there. And in fact, we at the Department of Health have uh, produced a lot of information, but we've been able to work together with the interagency volcano health Hazard Network, which is an international organization, and we've created a VOG dashboard that really is specifically designed towards Hawaii volcanic hazards. And that all the information about VOG, how to protect yourself from VOG, VOG's impacts, that's all sort of collated together in that one website. So just briefly, the website is vog.ivhhn.org. And that is just a wonderful resource for learning pretty much everything there is to know about VOG, how to protect yourself. Is there anything else you want to share or emphasize regarding VOG or potential health impacts? Yeah, I think the number one thing is, you know, I think people are concerned, and rightly so. This is a little bit of an unusual Well, it's certainly an unusual eruption since 1984, so there's a lot of uncertainty and people are worried, and that's very reasonable. But the best way to sort of counter that is keep yourself informed, you know, follow the Department of Health's air monitoring websites, the University of Hawaii's VMAP VOG forecasting predictions are useful for predicting where and when air pollution might happen from VOG. It's not exact, like any weather forecast, but it's very helpful in giving you an idea and sort of using those resources together to keep yourself aware, knowing what to do if there is high VOG in your area. All those things can really be beneficial to people to help them counter this this concerning problem. And um, we completely, you know, understand and feel the concern as well. But there are these steps that people can take, and we really want to encourage people to use the resources available. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Felton. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good day. That was state toxicologist Dr. Diana Felton talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the health effects of uh, VOG. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Stay tuned to HPR throughout the day for continuing coverage of the Mauna Loa eruption. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, Exploring the Human Connection to Nature. Now on view, details at honolulumuseum.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care island-wide, hicommunityhealthcenter.org. You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Joining us for today's reality check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell. He's here to talk about the fallout after a Maui County employee pled guilty to taking bribes. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, good morning, Catherine. So this is another wastewater <laughs> chapter. This is it's just the latest case, you know, in this thing that's sort of been running almost all year now. Yesterday, Wilfredo Savea, a 71-year-old retiree, a former uh, Maui County wastewater supervising mechanic, uh, he pleaded guilty yesterday to taking bribes from Honolulu businessman Milton Choi. And so this is part of, you know, a case that sort of broke in February 
uh, when federal prosecutors brought bribery charges and honest services wire fraud charges against two former state lawmakers. That was Jay Kalani English, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, and uh, former Rep. Ty Cullen. Uh, Cullen's about to be sentenced in January. Uh, English is already serving some time in Oregon. The case has also wrapped up a former Maui County environmental director named Stuart Stant. Uh, He was accused of taking more than $2 million in bribes. And uh, Choi, the businessman, he's already pled guilty along with Stant and the others. And so sort of the big thing with, you know, this newest case that just dropped yesterday is it kind of leaves this question hanging of, you know, when are we going to see the end of this uh, processional sorts of public officials that got caught up in this bribery scheme? Um, You know, uh, prosecutors, they point out that Savella had a relatively uh, small role to play in the scheme. As a supervising mechanic, he would identify parts uh, that needed to be ordered and try to steer those towards uh, Choi's company. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of different employees that may have had their hands on these contracts that, um, you know, are at the center of this federal investigation. And Assistant U.S. Attorney Ken Sorensen, he wouldn't say that this is the last case either. He said that, you know, their investigations are still continuing on a number of fronts. So we don't really know if this, you know, may be the end or if we may see others charged as part of the bribery scheme. Right. I think a lot of folks are wondering about that. You know, who else is going to turn up in this dragnet? Uh, But this particular employee, I mean, you know, he's no spring chicken. He's 71, but he could face up to 10 years in federal prison. He is. He appeared in court yesterday in a blue polo shirt and some slacks. I mean, you know, he, he looks like an uncle almost, you know, the kind of guy you'd see around the town. And his attorney, Victor Baki, uh, you know, he pointed that out, that he's just sort of a member of the community that got wrapped up in this culture of corruption in Maui County that sort of allowed this to happen. That's how the lawyer explained it, is that, you know, he didn't go out to solicit these types of bribes. It was Choi and others that put pressure on him. And, yes, he could face up to 10 years in prison. Uh, he could also fa- face fines of about $250,000. He's also got to pay back the dollar amount for the amount of bribes he took. That totals about $40,000. He accepted some first-class flights to Las Vegas from Milton Choi, as well as tens of thousands of dollars in direct bank deposits. You mentioned, though, comparatively, I mean, this is kind of uh, small potatoes, um, you know, compared to some of the uh, previous uh, defendants in the bribery and corruption case. Yeah, Savella's, uh, you know, direct supervisor, Stuart Stent, the former environmental director, he got almost $2 million worth of bribes to steer a lot of these contracts um, to Milton Choice companies. And your story mentions that uh, Savella is a naturalized U.S. citizen from the Philippines, so he could use some lose some rights in all of this. Yes, he is from the Philippines. Uh, Judge Leslie Kobayashi told him yesterday, you know, he could lose the right to vote. He could lose the right to possess firearms. And, you know, he may not be able to uh, hold an elected office, you know, if he decided to run after serving his prison sentence. Okay, well, we'll see what happens when he gets sentenced. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thank you. That was reporter Blaze Level here with today's reality check from Honolulu Civil Beat. Read the full story and more. Go to civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to Hawaii Island, Kauai, Maui, and Oahu, February 11th to the 18th. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for sticking around for the conversation. Pa'akai is the Hawaiian word for salt. Pa'a means solid, and kai is ocean. We're exploring salt stories all this week, and we turn our attention to what used to be in our Honolulu and what's happening now. Today, you may know it as a hipster development in Kaka'ako, where landowner Kamehameha Schools has developed a new community where it invites people to live, work, and play. But it's an area rich with the history of the old salt flats in the Honolulu Harbor area. We talked to Kanoe Pu'uohao, planning and development manager of KS, about the history and the sense of place. Kaka'ako, the area that KS owns and has developed into the community called our Kaka'ako, actually falls into what we call the Moku, or the district of Kona Oahu, within the Ahupua'a of Honolulu, and the smaller land section, the Ili of Ka'akaukukui. So the traditional name for the place that we know as our Kaka'ako today is actually Ka'akaukukui. You know, we know that there is a strong ali'i presence in the area, it was a royal compound and included residences of many ali'i, including Powahi herself. And so it's a special place to us. It's also the location of our headquarters at Kauaiha'o Plaza. Most prominently, it's really known as a place for salt, a place of rich resources. So Ka'akaukukui is known for its salt production and trade. That was definitely one of the prominent features. And that led to the name of the retail center, Salt at Arkaka'ako. But Pa'akai has served as an inspiration for a lot of the history of place. Pa'akai as a traditional ingredient, as you noted, is part of the Native Hawaiian way of life. Before it was a commodity, before it really functioned as an export trade element, it was used to preserve foods, right? So it has the preservation quality, pre-refrigeration, Salt was very important for that function. Traditionally and currently, you know, it is used for purifying purposes in ceremony, right? Physical and spiritual purification. So there are ceremonies such as a pikai ceremony where, you know, we kind of give prayers and have a sprinkling of salt to indicate that purity. It's used medicinally in la'au lapa'au practices. And then the last big feature of salt and pa'akai is that it brings people together. You know, salt is very much the impetus of, of a sense of community. People gather in places where there is both fresh water and salt water. And I think a lot of that energy brought people to the Kaka'ako, Kaka'kukui area. Yeah, there's practices such as Uba'akai, which we you know continue to practice today, where, where folks gather around a meal and a sharing, you know, kind of like a potluck. And then that just encourages the building of community. So all of these themes and all of these touch points are, you know, what we found in our research and kind of things that we hearken to and continue to apply today. Well, you know, I have been to countless blessings with the tea leaf and salt, but never really thought much about what that salt means in the context of community. Share with our listeners, you know, about how 
the salt flats used to be in that area. Yeah, so the salt pans of Kaka'ako were, were tremendous. I think we shared a few photos with you that you can just see their references back to the 1800s and 1840s. The commander, Charles Wilkes, described the intensity of the salt manufacturing in this area as large heaps, extensive heaps containing, you know, one to 200 tons of salt. So it was a tremendous production using a lot more, I think, acreage and land area than what you learned about in Moloka'i. But, you know, salt was then kind of a large commodity of the space. There was a lot of ingress and egress out of, you know, the harbors located in this area, Honolulu Harbor, of course, and right proximal to the shoreline there in Kaka'ako. And salt was exported to California, to China, Oregon, even Russia. So there were large productions in the salt pans and then storehouses, all of that salt, many, many tons coming in and out of the harbor there. I guess that's not hard to believe, you know, when you think of what King Kalakaua did and the journeys that he made around the world. To think that, you know, these lowly salt flats produced this wonderful product that was shared. Yeah, 100%. And salt, I think, often references as the primary resource of this place, but it also was you know, directly proximal to the shoreline at that time, which, which went all the way up to Alamana Boulevard. And, you know, there were fishing villages, and it was also a source of a few really large fisheries of the space, both Ka'akokukui and the neighboring Ili of Kukuloi'o, Kewalo, you know, the, the fisheries of the space were also large resources that extended out into the ocean for the people of the area. And so why was it so important for Kamehameha schools to use salt as kind of the centerpiece, you know, for that property down there? There are many place names of the area, and that's, you know, an important part of our process is to kind of understand place before we seek to, you know, make use or kind of create projects and bring people to place. We like to understand, you know, what is the sense of place and what existed here prior and what are, you know, the guiding kind of themes and especially the Inua Aina, traditional places, uh, place names, and how can they kind of guide our actions and tell us, you know, what was here, what traditionally the place was used for. So there are all sorts of names. Ko, the original name for Honolulu, Mamala Bay, which is, you know, kind of Honolulu Harbor area. Kuloloya is a family name, but also a place name down by the shoreline. Kaakaukukui, I shared with you. But a lot of these are directly tied to the specific space. So in our developments and in our buildings, we try to definitely make use of and elevate those names to recall them, use them and bring them back into, you know, kind of common lexicon. I think salt was definitely driven from the obvious presence of that function, which you can see like when we do, you know, historical research and archaeological studies, we often can see the layers in the land that show, aside from photos, that these areas were used for this purpose. So every piece of Aina or every market area, as we call them today, <laughs> had different functions and different uses back then, but those can be kind of elevated and used as inspiration. The point of salt pa'akai being a gathering element and a community building kind of energy around that was really a good first name <laughs> to elevate for this space. And you can see some of the new projects coming up now have both names that are tied to place, inspired by place but also that continue to reference the theme of Pa'akai 
in Ka'akaukukui. What we tried to highlight in our Kaka'ako is, you know, themes of Ho'ola, you know, kind of energy, healing energy and, and light given, especially this place, and we talk Kaka'ako specifically, you know, like the history of salt, the salt beds that were prominent, but also the history that's a little darker, right? With all of the ingress and egress and trade and travel and folks coming through this space, there was some sickness, you know, and a lot of hospitals were put up in that space and mm-hmm. kind of reinvigorating the element of, of healing and Ho'ola and light and bringing that um, kind of remembrance restoration back to both land and people, I think is is another kind of guiding point for us of of continuously elevating culture and what we do, grounding back to Aina and the history of place and how can we just honor that in the process, in addition to salt, which people do so well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Pa'akai, yeah, Yeah. mahalo for this. Pa'akai and its place in our Kaka'ako in 2022 and beyond. Kamehameha School says while it has the development of its first phase of five blocks underway, it is now shifting to phase two and the remaining five blocks in Honolulu. Look for its info center to learn more about the plans for the area and those historic pictures that we mentioned in that segment will be on our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Waldorf School, with a mission to educate each child to find meaning, passion, and purpose in life. Now accepting applications at honoluluwaldorf.org. And thank you so much, Bill and Zoe. You know, tomorrow is December 7th, and that marks the 81st anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Today we highlight the part that Rosie the Riveter played during that time. Rosie has become symbolic of the war effort by women across the country who stepped in to do jobs when so many of our men went off to join the military during World War II. All the day long, where the rain has shined, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory. Rosie, the riveter, keeps a sharp lookout for sabotage. Sitting up there on the fuselage, that little prayer can do more than a male can do. Rosie, the riveter. And this week, a handful of Rosies arrived in Honolulu to take part in the ceremonies. Marion Suze is in her 90s. She flew in for the anniversary. She was on hand at Pearl Harbor to sign posters and to take a boat ride out to the USS Arizona Memorial yesterday. She talked with us uh, to share her story of how she played a small part in shipbuilding as a young high schooler with a gift for drawing. My art teacher had recommended me for a class at UC Berkeley, and it was in engineering drawing. And I learned to uh, read and draw blueprints. And so I worked as a a draftsman, and I worked on the actual blueprints for the ship that we were building. And so what were your memories of that time? There was energy in the air. You could just feel it. You know, I lived in a town that we were building these ships for, first for Britain, but then for ourselves when Pearl Harbor was attacked. And uh, I'll say it was a time that the United States was truly united in a common effort to get the war over with and bring the guys back home. And that's how we all felt, And uh, even as a teenager, you know. People were busy. They had money in the pocket after uh, suffering the depression. And so everybody had a job. Did you have anybody in your family fight in the war? Actually, my dad was a career army man that had fought in World War One and Two, and so he, but he was stateside. 
he got transferred a couple of times, and uh, and the last time was close to the uh, Richmond where we were building the ships. Uh, I had two sisters, older sisters, who became welders. And uh, after uh, the family had moved down close to Richmond, my mother wanted to do something for the war effort. So she put my younger sister into the Kaiser childcare, where they gave her breakfast and sent her to school. And then my mother became a painter in the shipyard. So there were four women in my family who worked at the Kaiser shipyards in Richmond. What's it like then when you come here to Hawaii, you know, and see, you know, the memorial to all those who lost their lives here? You know, it's it's very sobering. And uh, I had the honor of, uh, on the 75th anniversary, I, I was here. And I got the honor of, of sitting with uh, Lauren Bruner. He was next to the last person to leave the Arizona. And so I have don't have words to say how honored I felt uh, to sit uh, next to him. And then I've read his book, uh, What a Revelation. And uh, I know to know what these heroes, these real heroes went through. It gets it gets emotional, you know, and I'm glad that, uh, you know, people are still observing it as they should. I understand you spent part of the morning signing Rosie the Riveter posters. Well, people, you know, they want anything signed. Most of we thought we were signing posters, but I've been signing these pins, these Rosie the Riveter pins little tiny letters <laughs> you know they forget that i'm 96 years old and uh and uh the, the arthritis prevents a lot of <laughs> that stuff but uh you persevere <laughs> i think it's important that we acknowledge the contribution that the women in this country made during the war effort yes i i, I truly believe that and they've told us that you know we we started the the Rosie, the women's movement, and good for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the more they talk about it and the more you realize it really was a, uh, the greatest generation that came to our country's defense. The guys are in the military, and we did everything on the home front. We endured a rationing of things that we couldn't get, but we, we did that. And we all wanted to do something to get it done, you know. And when the war ended, what was that like for you? My husband was in the Coast Guard, and there was much celebrating, but um, I hate to tell you that I didn't get to see the celebration. I was stuck at my mother-in-law's house in Omaha, Nebraska, <laughs> And I didn't get downtown, no. <laughs> but it was uh, it was really something, and everyone was emotional. You know, it was just a fantastic time. And did you stay on working as a draftsperson? No, I only worked a year. Uh, but by that time, I was expecting my first baby, so I, I had to quit. Uh, I, I laughingly say. Uh, I quit. I was eight months pregnant, but I couldn't get my leg up on the Kisses and bus anymore. Uh, <laughs> that first step was too high. So, uh, yeah. Anything else you want to share with our listeners just about this time and and what you're looking forward to on this trip? Coming here to Pearl Harbor has this, the more that you read and uh, the more that you you value the people, you value those people that, that with all their names up there. You know, it just makes you feel humble. I'm just glad that, I, like I said before, that I was part of that generation that gave all, you know. I did what I could do, and uh, they certainly gave all. You know, we were encouraged to go in there and do, a, do these jobs, but they also encouraged us to leave. Uh, we knew that we were in there for the duration of the war.
and that the military p- people that came back home, they would get those jobs. So, no, it didn't come as a shock, and, and uh, we knew that was coming. So what did you do later after you raised your children? I had six children. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And, uh, and uh, I, I like to travel. When I was raising these kids, and a uh, stay-at-home mom for 25 mm-hmm. years, and my last child was a senior in high school. That's when I started traveling. And I, all those years, I had thought I had three travel wishes. I wanted to go to New Zealand. I wanted to go through the Panama Canal. And I wanted to float down the Nile River. And I've done them all. <laughs> Good for you. I have to say that I had a, an experience I didn't ex- experience. Uh, when we were on the airplane coming, and they, uh, they, they put us in first class. And I had never ridden in first class on my airplane before. So that was a big event. <laughs> and then when we got off, off the plane and came into the, to the reception area, the Navy band was there playing. So, uh, I mean, we, we had a, a spectacular <laughs> entrance. <laughs> Spectacular entrance and kudos for Hawaiian Airlines for the uh, upgrade for the VIP guests. That was 96-year-old Marion Suze, who will be attending tomorrow's ceremony at the World War II Valor in the Pacific National Monument, marking the 81st anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And, you know, folks, that does it for us today. I'm Catherine Cruz. Now back over to the pitch table.